Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Kenya. In this episode, join us in the fifth installment of our fifth-year anniversary summit recap, where we feature fireside chats with thought leaders and founders across industries, sharing their insights on various sectors and trends, shaping the future of ASEAN Innovation. Historically, the rise in massive value creation in Southeast Asia's digital economy has been mainly driven by massive funding into horizontal e-commerce, fintech, and logistics platforms. Unlike the U.S., we haven't seen any full-scale regional B2B enterprise plays yet. But so far, we have seen the early innings of companies targeting this segment that have all raised significant funding rounds in recent months. So why are we seeing such companies raise significant funding during this next wave of innovation in the region? Is this the right time? We tackle these questions and more with Ken Song Lu, Chairman and Co-Founder of Pioneering Voice AI Solutions Platform, Wiz.ai, Todd Schweitzer, CEO and Co-Founder of Leading Open Finance Platform in Southeast Asia, Brancas, and Theodora Chu, CEO and Co-Founder of Asia's Leading Mental Healthcare Company, Intellect. The conversation was moderated by Shefali Dudani from Insignia Ventures Investment Team and took place on September 23rd, 2022, and both the episode and transcript have been edited for brevity and clarity. For new calls every Tuesday, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're tuning into the show. For daily insights from entrepreneurs, investors, and operators in Southeast Asia's fast-changing innovation landscape, follow us on LinkedIn at Insignia Ventures Partners or Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's head into the call. Today, we're going to be talking about B2B Enterprise, and here we have founders that are pioneers in Southeast Asia in their respective sub-sectors, so one in finance, customer engagement, as well as healthcare. While your business have been around even before the pandemic, you have in recent months raised significant amount of funding. What do you think are the drivers for each of your companies today that have led to increasing interest in enterprise tech? I would love for you all to answer this question, but before that, would love to hear a little bit about yourself and your company, especially for the audience. Hi everyone, good afternoon. My name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Broncas. Broncas is an open finance or open banking technology company really native to Southeast Asia. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, and very soon in Bangladesh. And open banking or open finance looks a lot different in emerging markets and in particular in Southeast Asia. This is not your open banking Europe use cases, and it's very different and I think a much larger opportunity than it is in more developed markets. This is a region where in Indonesia, 50% of the population is unbanked. In the Philippines, it's more than 60%. This is a region where credit card penetration is below 5%. This is a region where online identity verification is basically done from scratch, kind of through manual KYC. So when you apply the, open, the typical open banking products of account data aggregation or payment initiation, you're actually solving fundamental financial services infrastructure gaps. And so we think that's a really exciting opportunity and things have been going great. And to Shafali's question on, on some of the drivers, I mean, fintech in Southeast Asia during COVID accelerated in an incredible way. A couple of things were happening. Number one, the traditional incumbent FIs, which really relied on their physical infrastructure and physical distribution, branches were shut down. In markets like Indonesia or Philippines or Vietnam, bank branches were closed for you know, nine months. At the same time, the digital wallets and the consumer fintech app and some of the banks that had strong digital channels all of a sudden were accelerating. 
right, and onboarding hundreds of thousands of new customers from those banks that were remaining shut, right? And so I think emerging from COVID, I've been just incredibly excited by seeing traditional banks that are really starting to think about API products as a new product category and as a new revenue driver where they can change the economics of reaching their populations and reaching particularly consumer and SME in a different way. And also there's, I think, a bit of real threat from the likes of the Gojex and the Grab and the Dana and Gcash in the Philippines that are actually taking market share from the consumer banking side. So that has really been an accelerant for open finance and fintech generally in Southeast Asia. And Brancus hopefully is going to be part of that trend moving forward. Thank you, Todd. Now we can move on to Theo, probably. So it's great to be here. I'm Tedorik Chu, the co-founder and CEO of Intellect. A bit about us, we are Asia's leading and fastest growing mental health care company. We essentially provide workforces, insurers, and individuals as well, access to full-stack mental health care across Asia. Today, we have the pleasure of serving over 3 million members on a platform. We work with leading employers like Dell, Singtel, Shopee, Food Dependent, and more. And we work with and partner with some of the, the region's largest insurers as well. Just to give a bit of background for many in the room, you guys may be thinking it's mental health care, you know, a, a huge space, or is it a big space? And many may think it's actually a very nascent piece. But actually, an interesting stat and fact is that within Asia itself, two out of five people have an underlying mental health issue that's diagnosable, but less than a fifth of them actually seek or get access. Our fundamental belief is that it's one of the biggest crises and issues in the world. And in the next few years, and we're already seeing it very rapidly happen, it's becoming a very big issue to be solved for for the region as well. And a bit leading towards the question that, that you had as well of what we think are the driving trends for what we do in the B2B2C mental health care space in Asia. The underlying belief and tracks a bit to what I just mentioned, that it's a huge issue. Many people struggle. But fundamentally, mental health care in the space, mental health care systems in Asia are quite broken. It hasn't changed over the last few decades due to the stigma, due to the cost, and also the supply of providers in the region as well. However, if you look across the waters to the U.S., we've seen over the past few years some of the largest healthcare players emerging in the behavior and mental health space. And we very quickly see this trend, it's quickly moving to Asia, but not in an exact same manner. It requires ways of us localizing care building our own infrastructure that's good for the region here as well. So that's one of the big things we think that this is a huge underlying issue. The awareness and awakening towards the need for mental health, it's very quickly expanding. And in the next few years, we believe that fundamentally it will be as important and as big as physical health care fundamentally as well. So yeah, that's, that's a bit about what we think. So building onto that, right, Theo, could you maybe share a little about some of the challenges that you faced along the way building intellect? Just to give a bit of background as to what Intellect does fundamentally, it's a full-stack mental health care system in a single mobile app. Today, we offer anything from self-guided programs, access to coaches, therapists, psychiatrists, and even a 24-7 distress helpline across all of APEC virtually. Right, We have our app fully localized in over 10 languages, from English to Mandarin, Cantonese, Thai, Korean, so on and so forth. And we have Importantly, build a network of mental health providers across the APEC region as well. Meaning to say, if a client of ours has an employee in, in China, for example, they open the Intellect app, they get a whole app in Mandarin, they get local native mental professionals that are native Chinese speaking as well. And we do the same across the region. So that's a big part of actually how we think and how we, how we build what we're doing as well. I think fundamentally two big challenges are, one is that mental health care is a very nascent space in Asia. So not just the demand, but also the supply of it. We are building and carving out the category. The good thing is that there are many proof points already happening in the US and Europe. And Asia is a very closely following market that actually is expanding in need as well. So that's the first big piece. The market, we are 
leading it, but we're also building it all together. So there are challenges, but it's a huge blue ocean that we're trying to, to capture as well. The next key thing I would say is really building the infrastructure. It hasn't changed over the last few decades. We're building that thesis here as well. Moving on, Jian Fang, would love to hear more about your background and also your journey on building Viz.ai. This is Jian Fong. Actually, like a very honored to be here and participate. And right now, I'm a tech series entrepreneur, and we started our company like Wisdom AI in 2019. We are actually a company like a, have a vision, try to reinvent our smarter customer engagement, customer services using AI technology such as like voice, conversational AI, and also like NLP, text-to-speech, this kind of, all these kind of technologies. Try to help to effectively and efficiently try to engage with customers for the business needs, like a business task. And one of the technology we are very proud of is like a, our robot, we call like a TopBot, actually can talk over the phone with the users of our clients. So they're like a human, more than in a short survey, like more than 90% of the audience, they are even not aware they are talking to a robot. This is basically like our product and service. Right now, our bot is able to talk in 10 languages, including Singlish, Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Malay, Thai, even like Spanish of like a Mexican like accent. And we also having large enterprise customers such as BBS, like Sintel and Lazada, Simani, etc. That's pretty much like our experience here. Yeah. I think the next question is also for you. I think you've built a great platform. You have several patents. You've also been recognized globally. And we also are aware that you have team across different regions and experts and talent is lacking, especially for what you do. So can you tell me, how do you see the adoption of voice AI solutions evolving across markets in the region? Actually, this is a very good question. So <laughs> I think like for adoption of voice AI and also like this kind of AI technology, I think like the first I was looking at on the, the market perspective. In market, I think like pandemic actually drives a lot for the digitalization, especially for business. So before pandemic, when we talk to large enterprises, they usually think, well, you know, we are in a market with low labor cost. Why should I like adopt technology to do this? But like during the pandemic, a lot of enterprises, they feel such a need, you know, because one of our customers is they experience their like shutdown of their Malaysia call center. Then next, next several days, their backup call center in Philippines also shut down. Then like they have to switch back to their like a Singaporean like employees to everyone like a pick up phone call to support. So during the pandemic, they like contact us say, yeah, we need this kind of top out services to help us to engage a customer. So that's, that's one part. I think like this pandemic really drives the digitalization for business. So that's one part. And I think the second thing is after pandemic, we saw like kind of like a labor shortage across the world in US, also like here in Southeast Asia, although like we have a large population here, but like a lot of business, they still found like a, a, a big shortage for that. So this is kind of like the market size needs I saw. Technology wise, we have a very strong like engineering team. We actually like help to humanize those kind of conversation. And our bot also able to help to scale in a very large volume. Like for example, one customer, we have them to make 1 million call within two hours. 
this is not the limit we can actually increase much more compared with that. Then another thing is, I think like this is very important is the consistency of quality conversation. The bot can like handle very consistently in the morning till the evening. And there's no emotion change. They were no shouting to customers. So very consistent, very, you know, fully compliance. So this is very good. And I think third thing is we actually, you know, one interesting case is we do a POC with one of our customers. They are still a little bit hesitant about like using our product, but like during the testing, you know, we found like, okay, there's a breakdown of their system. So we actually like uh, do some mining and data intelligence through all these calls. Then we get back to them and say, yeah, you guys maybe check your server to see if there's any issue. Then they say, yeah, we actually able to do this kind of data intelligence. So that's also the one of the things, you know, our customer loves our most. So after three years here, and also we saw a growing adoption of those kind of AI technology. There's one, one book called like Across the Chasm, you know, which is very famous in 1990s for the software industry. You know, those innovation and new technology adoption, which actually like a, one important step is how cross the chasm, get into the bowling alley. I think our top bot and our AI technology is in that stage of the adoption. Thanks for sharing. And I like the fact that you mentioned that there is consistency with the talk pods that you have today, which goes to show how sticky your clients are. So the next question is for Todd. I know driving open finance adoption is not easy. It's an equation that involves more than just product and technology. So how do you go about educating the market and creating value with open finance? That's the real challenge, actually, with building open finance infrastructure in an unregulated or not yet regulated market is we have a lot of education to do. For the Philippines, they have just now started to draft the regulations on digital consent capture. Like how do you properly, according to kind of Philippine background law, how are you going to properly capture digital consent that I've agreed to do a one-time data share to a lender, or I want a tokenized long-term data share for a financial management app. Even these rules are not yet in place. Right? So we have a lot of education, and I spend a lot of my time educating regulators, working with bank partners that are starting to see more and more commercial use cases for launching banking as a service or embedded finance or open finance or whichever term you want to use. For companies that are just now discovering the use cases for open finance or, or building embedded finance products into their app, we're running an accelerator in the Philippines and we have, in a week of a call for applications, we had 30 qualified companies apply that are planning, that are intending at the seed stage to build embedded finance somehow into their apps. And then educating also the end user who is at the stage kind of where credit cards were maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when it was seen as highly irresponsible for you to enter your credit card details on a website. And now, of course, not only do we do it without thinking, but we, we save our cards everywhere. By choosing to enter a not yet regulated and relatively new market in a regulated industry, there's a lot of, of education. So what Broncos does, you know, we do two things. We work with financial institutions as an enterprise SaaS provider, helping them become API publishers. So actually helping the banks deploy commercial APIs for account opening, for card issuance, for payment APIs, for remittances, and for data and identity products as well. And so that's really for the banks, it's showing them the use case and the commercial value and actually in some cases, literally working with their team to build the business case 
so that they can get board approval or management approval. And then on the business side, it's showing the different ways that open finance can be an enabler for a new set of products. But yeah, as you described, Shafali, it's constantly educating the market and, and kind of articulating the demand, showing customer case studies, showing the security review and demonstrating that this is a technology that can drive product innovation with our customers. It seems that you're also a pioneer in the space, right? If we look at open finance, and if we were to scan regions, think one way or the other, soon enough, you're going to expand to a lot of neighboring regions in Southeast Asia. So how do you go about expansion plans? That's my first question. And second question, you know, you've been in the industry for a very long time. I believe it's since 2016, if I'm not wrong. What have you learned? What are the key learnings that you would share to the audience today? So the first one is regional expansion. I mean, we made a bet early on that we're not going to provide an Indonesia-specific or a Vietnam-specific solution because when we scan the market, a lot of the FIs that are looking to become API publishers or selling API products, they're actually going from zero to one. And that infrastructure, that API orchestration infrastructure, the developer portal, the security and admin settings, the standardized API definitions, that doesn't change market to market. Of course, maybe Indonesia has data localization requirements that you know, Vietnam may not have, but that's a minor issue compared to the product design. So we saw a regional opportunity. We did not want to get sucked into too much localization because we see our opportunity to, to expand as a global emerging markets company. So our regional expansion, I think, required a lot of product development trade-offs to ensure that we had something that was geo-agnostic, but really focused on solving emerging market infrastructure. In terms of learnings, I think I was naive to enterprise sales. And, you know, when you're convincing a financial institution or a large tech company to basically buy an embedded finance or open finance product for the first time, it is very easy and tempting to get sucked into an endless POC proof of concept or some pilot initiative, which actually does not have support to become a long-term kind of multi-hundred thousand or million dollar account value. And so I, I don't think we were discerning enough, and I don't think we had the right kind of enterprise sales infrastructure, everything from pre-sales solutioning to post-sales implementation to really support that. So I think my big lesson was for those entering into an enterprise business, like do not underestimate the complexity of the sales process. Which again, as I say, that sounds like an obvious thing, but it's very easy as an early stage founder to get excited by people with a business card from a large institution saying they want to work with you on a POC. But I think finding that, that focus is actually essential in enterprise. Thanks, Todd, for sharing. So next question I have is for Theo. So when we look at mental health care, right, I think it's a need that cuts across borders. And in that case, you would need a lot of hyper-localization. And in essence, based on what you shared before, you have secured a lot of multinational clients. So how do you go about creating these local nuances, right, to care for the individual at the same time securing these multinational clients? That's a great question and one that we think a lot about and, and invest a lot of resources from since day one as well. One thing about mental health fundamentally is that there are some things that stay the same no matter where you are in the world and then some things are quite different as well. Fundamentally, everyone has similar mental health emotions and struggles from depression as a condition to anxiety and, and trauma and so on and so forth. But what transcends that and what becomes quite nuanced, it's the local context, nuances within every market as well. What someone in Indonesia struggles with, it's quite different from what someone in Singapore would struggle with as well. What triggers them, essentially? So for us since day one, one of the big themes we thought about was how do we actually get 
mental health care localized for Asia. Making it scalable, but also how do we make repeatable playbook for productizing, uh, localizing a product itself. So, so today itself, Intellect is available, as I shared earlier, in over 10 languages. We, we have providers across the region in 20 plus countries to give that care. And that's critical because for us, a big part of go to market and taking a step back, when you look at the, the landscape for mental health care in, in the enterprise space as well, who's going to pay for mental health care? There are consumers, there are employers, and then there are the partners in the ecosystem as well. So when you look at where the market is today, the unique thing about Enflag here is that while we are B2B2C, we work with corporates and insurers, since day one, we also had a unique direct-to-consumer version of our platform accessible as well to create cloud and scale. But when actually we dug further and deeper, we found that actually who was ready to pay at scale were not the consumers, at least today itself. Uh, the market for mental health care is still a bit nascent in that respect for consumers to pay three figures or four figures out of pocket on a regular basis. But then who's going to pay? Because this is a real need. So we looked at employers. There was a huge segment that actually paid for it. And we look at insurers as well and the related health benefits players. So the space we're playing in, it's quite a unique one where we play in a health benefits space. And the stakeholders we lie with are different as well from, from a typical enterprise sales cycle. So what that means, and linking back to the localization question, our goal is to work with the largest employers, the largest insurers. To take, for example, we are today the APEC-wide provider for mental benefits. For Dell, one of the world's largest companies, for companies like Singtel across the region, APEC-wide, Foodpanda, Shopee, and more. So, so that means we really have to take a, a regional approach from day one. How do we build care that it's localized, but at the same quality across the region? And that's been really, really core to what we do. But importantly, is to make it scalable. So we have built a, a repeatable playbook where we partner with local professionals, local uh, translators, and a lot of QA and vetting processes to make sure that what we build, it's not just translated, but actually very contextualized and evidence-based in what we do as well. And building on for that, right, if we look at like the Western landscape, I think there are quite a few players there that have made it in the mental healthcare space. What are the parallels that you can draw with between the Western market and the Asia market today? I think in many sectors, not just ours in healthcare or in the healthcare in specific, we see it changing a little bit, but oftentimes in the past, the U.S. leads a lot of the trends, usually in some of the larger categories we see today, so from, from you know, transport to e-commerce. And the same it's for us as well in the mental health care category, where we see over the past, not just two, three years, over the past five years, seven years, a lot of the mental health care players in the U.S. have been building a case, building a platform to serve the needs of the U.S. market. So we dug a lot into the displays here. Some of the largest unicorns today, multiple of them are, are huge companies in the U.S., but when we start, started digging deeper, what we found was that actually in Asia, there are very different problems to be solved for. So that means that there needs a different approach to it. So to give an example, the issue with mental health care in the US is that the, mental health, the healthcare system is quite broken in some respects. People who need care can't seek support, or it takes months, or they can't find the right provider, or all the sorts here. The US, being much more mature in the literacy of mental health, many people actually need that support. So we see great players that do a D2C psychiatry model that works really well. Some of the largest players in the US are D2C players. When we look at Asia, however, it's a different issue in place whereby we actually see a massive issue. Some of the highest mental health crisis rates across Asia, from Singapore to Hong Kong to Japan, Korea, it's not news to all of us, but at the same time, quite paradoxically, we have some of the lowest openness towards seeking mental health care, traditionally speaking. We're seeing that change rapidly today. So our work in Asia, it's how do we build end-to-end -end care, but really get people started on their journeys as well. So we took a reverse approach to what the US players did. They went clinical and then upstream towards lighter touch care. We went lighter touch care to get people started. 
and really went much deeper in care we gave. So we started from self-care programs, moved towards coaching, clinical therapy, and today we offer psychiatry and even a 24-7 distress support piece as well. So, so that's one of the big pieces that we found, the learnings. The learnings was around how to build a best-in-class mental health care system that has never been done in Asia. But what we did next was how do we make sure that we're solving the right issues in Asia. Naturally, it's very different problems and we take it like, differently as well. Got it. I agree. I think we can draw parallels across even different companies, how localization is very important in Southeast Asia, not just in the healthcare space, but even in the finance space that we've seen recently. All right, so we only have five minutes left, uh, and we have one question from the audience that has been pushed through the app. The question is, can you share examples of enterprise customers that you have worked with and how they have been impacted by the innovation you provide? Maybe Todd, can we start with you? One obvious example is in consumer lending in a market like Indonesia, a lot of the lenders will need to build credit profiles from scratch. So we work with a few of the largest consumer lenders, whether it's BNPL, Final Pay Later, or e-commerce merchant financing, so that they can make instant credit decisions because they're getting verified, instantly available data from bank accounts, from e-commerce transaction history, from telco data. We also are enabling payment processors and, and e-commerce shops to accept direct pay by bank, which will be 80, 90% cheaper than running through a payment intermediary. And if you're a payment processor on selling our aggregated APIs, then you don't need to interact also with you know, 10 or 15 different bank infrastructures, which may have different implementations of various tech. And then for the banks we've worked with across Southeast Asia, enabling them to become API publishers, whether it's Mandiri or BRI in Indonesia, or whether it's NetBank or others, or ACB in Vietnam, we've enabled them to actually open up a new channel and a new product category where they can now onboard customers or they can enable pay-by-bank products without needing to build new software. And actually the marginal cost of onboarding that new customer or, or sending that payment is zero because it's the tech partners consuming a, an aggregated Broncos API that are doing heavy lifting on behalf of the bank. So those are some examples. How about you, Jianfeng? Would you like to share? Since Todd like, uh, just shared the story about like a consumer lending part, I think like, I will also share the same story like, as you. Previously, those lending vendors, they usually hire thousands of people try to make phone calls, try to do debt collection. But one of the customers we saw the trend is this start like, uh, without any human agent being hired. You know, because those recruiting, training, quality control and those human agent retention, this is a very tedious job and very, very hard like, to find those talents. So right now, they usually maybe like start with several human agents, try to do their collection job by themselves for maybe like a one or two weeks. So they, like, they set up the standards. Then later, they were just like using our bots, try to help them to do the phone call. Of course, they were also double check with like the statistics. For this part, they actually significantly reduce the cost and also increase the productivity for that. So we see more and more trends like this for using our Taobao, our services. Last one, Theo. So what would be your take on that? You do have a lot of enterprise clients as well. That's a good question. And one that actually, we have many examples of, of the value you give to clients as well. But I'll, I'll take a broad stroke and I'll go one, one specific in. So for us, we work with employers, we work with insurers to basically cover every single employee or policyholder they have 
with mental health benefits, mental health coverage, something that's quite new, quite nascent. So oftentimes we get asked, is it checkbox, is it a nice to have piece? But digging a bit deeper, there's, there's multiple facets that we actually solve for employers as well. A big part of what we do today is actually there are underlying increasing trends and risk of employees in distress. This is not news. We actually see employees increasingly quitting companies for, for various reasons, not to do with the pay, but the environment, the stresses they face. So there's one underlying piece where a lot of employers recognize today, many employees are struggling with some levels of distress quite critically and some more milder. So there's a big part we actually do to tackle that aspect there. Today itself, we run, we have a very strong clinical team that runs over 10 clinical studies right now with, with efficacy proven on multiple fronts. But one of the key things we're doing now is to prove ROI as well. How does actually mental health benefits and a proactive mental health support lead towards more honor for the company, um, less attrition, and fundamentally, how do we actually even do it long-term health benefits, reduction in chronic health issues? That's actually where we play quite a bit with the insurers as well. So there's one piece there. And the next aspect, employers and, and also insurance policies today, what people expect from where they work at has changed fundamentally. It's no longer just putting, getting, getting a paycheck or the likes there. It's a lot of times the benefits, the coverage, and the support they get from their employers, which is a big part of their lives. So we see increasingly not just the innovative, large global multinationals, but a lot of local conglomerates, even traditional clients we work with. From We, we work with Avery Denison, the Fortune 500 manufacturing firm as well across the region. So we see this increasing trend where mental health care is becoming one of the largest growing forefront as important as physical health aspects. And that's when the benefit we give to employers. We, we make it easy and seamless for them to cover all the employees across the region through one very simple platform. Thank you so much for sharing the insights today. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.